So early the, earlier this week, I I had this thought. I was kind of wondering if uh, if TPing houses is still a thing, and uh, so I I looked it up, and it's I guess it's not quite as common. I remember when I was a kid, it was very common. Uh, so it does still happen. It's not quite as often. If you don't know what TPing is, if this is new to you, uh, it looks it looks like that, right? So this is common for teenagers to do, uh, at least back when, when I was a teenager. Uh, this one actually took place a couple years ago in California, and so the, uh, the mother of the house took a photo of it, posted it on Facebook, and uh, she said these words. She said, to the kids that TP'd our house last night, I have a few choice words for you. Amazing job. You have given me faith that there are still youths that choose to go above and beyond. <laughs> One day, I believe you will change the world with your determination to be the best. I do have you on my ring, the like a video. Uh, I have you on my video. And when I find out who you are, game on, my friend. We, too, have a Costco supply of TP. <laughs> At any rate... Uh, if you can imagine if you woke up and, and saw that outside your door, uh, a couple questions would go on in your mind. At least two would be on my mind. First one would be, who did that? Who, who's the culprit behind this? The second question uh, is, why did they do it? What, what are they trying to communicate? Now, TP, that is, that's kind of a fun one, but you can imagine if something more serious happened to your home, a rock through the window, something like that. Who, who did that, and why did they do that? Those are the questions we want to know. And we, we've come to the place in Mark where there's uh, almost, for us, it seems like some incidental detail that Mark just kind of states and moves on. Uh, and let me draw your attention to it in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to, bot top to bottom. For us, that can feel like, well, that's a part of the story, but not that big of a deal, and we, so we just move on. But that, that is a massive statement there. And you can bet any, any person, right when that happened, has two questions going on in their mind. Who did that? Who tore the curtain? And why did they do it? What are they trying to say? Now, if you could just even imagine uh, the, the first priest who goes into the temple and spots this. The, the temple, if you remember, that's the very center of Israel, in terms of the, the importance. It's the most important building of the people of Israel. People pilgrimage to come to see the temple. And only certain people can go into the temple. Only the priests are welcome into the temple. The, the, the common folk have to stay on the outside. And when the priests would enter, there would be two rooms inside that temple. The first room is called the holy place. And uh, in the holy place, we'll say north is up here, on the, on the north end of the, of the room, you have the showbread. This is to represent the bread that, that God uh, fed his people, the manna, that, how God supplied through the wilderness in the 40 years. In the, on the southern part of the room, you have the menorah, or the candlestick, or the lampstand, how God led his people, gave them light, and cared for them. And then on the west side of the room, directly in front, because you enter from the east, directly in front is the altar of incense representing the prayers that go up before God, the prayers of God's people. And right behind the altar of incense is this massive curtain. This is a beautiful curtain. Now, 
that curtain is protective. That protects the priest from dying. Because on the other side of the curtain is the unique dwelling place of God. And sinners cannot be in the dwelling place of God. And so it actually protects the priest from actually going in and dying. Because the priest had to go in there every day into the holy place. But they can't go into the holy of holies. Only one priest can go in there one time a year, lest they die. So when they go into the holy of holies, they're, they're renewing the bread. They're, they're renewing the, the candle and such and, and lighting the, the incense and making sure that that is going. So they're renewing the elements. Uh, but you can bet that when that first priest walks in and he sees that curtain split that would have sent shivers down his spine. It probably wouldn't have been abnormal for him to screech. Maybe he ran out of the room. But I can guarantee you probably two questions are on his mind. Who did that? And why did they do it? Who ripped that curtain and why did they rip that curtain? And those are the two questions I want to answer this morning. We're just going to hit verse 38 today. Who ripped that curtain? And why did they rip that curtain? So first one, who ripped the curtain? If you read it again, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, We might be tempted to think, well, Mark doesn't really tell us who ripped the curtain. Except if you look at the details, I think he makes it actually quite clear. The first thing to notice there is he goes out of his way to not just simply say the curtain was ripped, it was torn in two, but it was ripped from top to bottom. Now, we don't want to think of the curtain sort of like, uh, you know, we have the nursing mother's area out there. It's, about, uh, it's probably an eight-foot curtain. You know, it kind of blocks the way. Uh, that, we're not talking about some eight-foot curtain here where you could just kind of reach up and rip it. Nor are we talking like some thin piece of cloth, sort of, sort of like Hulk Hogan style, kind of rip the shirt or something like that. You could, you could just rip the curtain. You're talking about a thick piece of curtain of uh, tapestry that's very tall, some estimate around 30 feet up, you know, up all the way to the ceiling. So this is a massive piece of cloth, and there's no way some, some person can just walk in there and rip the curtain. But here, Mark, uh, calling out, is ripping from the top down to the bottom, indicating that God himself is the one ripping the curtain. This is not by the human hand. This is God splitting that curtain from the top right down to the bottom. The other way we see that is if you see uh, in verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Uh, You might remember, let's see if you remember, uh, there's one other place that this word for torn is used in the Gospel of Mark. Anybody remember what that is? Yeah, exactly. Christ's baptism, chapter one. The heavens are ripped open. They're torn open because God is coming in. God is entering into the world. God opens the heavens, and then he speaks, this is my beloved son. And at the end of the book, God rips open the curtain, which opens the way to the dwelling place of God. The heavens are the dwelling place of God, and God rips it open. The the Holy of Holies is God's dwelling place, and he rips it open. And then what happens right after that? The centurion declares the very same thing. This is the son of God. So Mark very clearly in my my book is very, very much indicating God is the one that ripped this curtain. Now, that's very significant, right? I mean, it would be one thing if some sort of like vandals walked in and just kind of ripped the curtain. That would, I mean, that would be a serious thing. Uh, it would be a, a very serious thing to listen to as well if it was uh, like the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders of Israel, if they did that. That would be a, really make a statement. But if it's God himself making a statement, it's worth listening to. 
And beyond that, God had just ripped the curtain of something that he commanded his people to, to actually build. The, the curtain, there's nothing wrong with the curtain. The curtain's actually good. The temple was a place of worship. So remember, like, where this curtain even came from. This, is, this goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. When God had rescued his people out of, the, out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and they're, they're coming out of there, uh, Exodus 20 and beyond, God trains his people, teaches his people, to build what's called a tabernacle, a, a tent, a mobile tent. And in this tent, this would be the unique dwelling place of God. And it first had an outer court that uh, protected the tabernacle. Now, just, just like the temple, not everybody could even go into the, to, to the court itself. Entered in from the east, and the first thing you come to when the priests come in would be a bronze altar. That's where they would make sacrifice to God. Beyond the, uh, the, the altar is the bronze laver. That's where they wash. They must cleanse themselves if they're going to enter into the tent. Because beyond that is the tent now. And when you enter into the tent, like I said, there's two rooms. First, you enter in the Holy of Holies. And then the second room is called the, or at the holy place. The holy of holies is a perfect cube. And it's in, within the holy of holies that the unique dwelling place of God is. Certainly God dwells all, everywhere, right? He's omnipresent. But God has chosen to manifest his, his presence in a very unique way in the holy of holies, uh, in that tabernacle. And now in the, in the holy of holies, you have a couple items. You have the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the ark, uh, which was only to be carried on poles, inside the ark you have three items. There, there's supposed to be three items. You have the, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So those are in there. You also have a jar full of manna. Uh, that would be manna f- that uh, uh, God had fed his people in the wilderness. And then you also have Aaron's staff, remember, that budded. And all three of those things should be in the Ark of the Covenant. Above the covenant, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, you have the cherubim. These are these winged creatures that are angelic. They're statues. And right in between them, you have what's called the mercy seat. Above the ark, between the cherubim, and it's right there. That is where God has chosen to manifest his presence. In the temple then, the temple was the place of all places. This is the most sacred place on earth. And this is a place that's very, very good. It's very well respected. It's very well loved. This is, this is not something that we should think of as bad. This was what God gave to his people to facilitate worship. And going to the temple is actually have to, supposed to have a deep impact on the hearts of the people. It's supposed to produce worship towards God. Because we're supposed to see that God is great. We can't go close to God because he's so almighty. He's so holy. We can't go close to him. We're so sinful. And it's supposed to produce humility in the people. Humility towards God. Humility towards other people. It's supposed to produce love towards God. Love towards other people. And it's supposed to be pointing beyond to some, a greater temple that would come. A greater sacrifice that would come. Because everybody knows that blood of bulls and goats, they, that can't actually stand in the place of a human. We need a greater land that would come and, and, and cleanse us from our sins. And this is all supposed to be happening at the temple. The temple is a, is a sacred, holy, joyful place. It's supposed to create worship in people. And it's a wonderful thing. And yet here, God rips it. Now why in the world would God rip the curtain that was supposed to be so good and really produce worship and humility and love in the people of God? Well, so we move to our second question, why 
Why did he do it? And that's really what we have to figure out. Uh, historically, there's been two reasons uh, given uh, by scholars and pastors. Uh, most of them believe that both of these things are being communicated. Some think just one or the other, and I think you can show uh, throughout uh, the book of Mark and in the scriptures uh, that is both. Um, the first one we're, we'll hit today, uh, we just don't have time to get both of them today. Plus, uh, we are trying to slow down a little bit so we hit the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. So, if we <laughs> so we're just going to hit this one today. Uh, and then next week we'll hit the second, uh, second uh, why, what, what, what God's communicating with ripping the curtain. The first thing uh, that we should notice is that, is that God is ripping the curtain because the temple is being misused. You see, the temple was meant to facilitate worship and love of God and love of people. But that's not what's happening in the temple. Instead, the temple had become a place where people go to feel important. They feel like they're better than other people. It was a place where the, the powerful could kind of fill their pockets with more cash. The temple had become a place where people go to the temple, make sacrifice, so they feel like, okay, now we got God on our side for the week, and we can go about and live our, our lives how we want to. We just kind of keep God in our pocket. The temple was not a place of worship of God. It was a place of worship of, of the, ourselves. Kind of keeping God in our debt. As long as we do these religious sacrifices, God now owes us. And he needs to stay off our back because we can do what we want because we, at least we did this. You might, you might think of it as the people had a lot of the temple and these religious activities become something uh, almost like viewing God as a farmer would view a barn cat. Because I, I, I've never lived on a farm, but the way I understand barn cats is barn cats live outside in the barn. Barn cats are not allowed in the house. Right? You, you, don't want, you, won't, you don't want the barn cat coming in because it's kind of invading life in the house. They, they might be stinky, might leave hair around, might have some dirt on and kind of get the house dirty. Like, no, 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 don't, don't come and invade our space. This is our home. You stay outside. Now, the farmer actually provides a little bit of housing. You know, we'll give you the barn. They even give uh, some dry food out there for the, for the barn cat. This actually keeps the cat on the property. You know, if the cat, cat doesn't have shelter or some dry food, then oftentimes the, the barn cat might leave. So the, the farmer says, well, I'll provide you enough so that you stay on my property. As long as you do what I want you to do, I'll keep you here. And what does, the bar, what does the farmer want the barn cat to do? Kill the mice, kill the rats, and get rid of the ground squirrels. Because they ruin the harvest. So the farmer says, as long as that cat does its job, what I want it to do, it can stay on my property. But if it's not going to do that, because some barn cats won't chase the mice, good riddance, we'll get rid of you. I'll go find another one. That's exactly what worship had become at the temple. As long as God does what we want him to do, well, we'll, we'll do these religious sacrifices. And we'll do this, and now he owes us to, to treat us the way we want. And he, he needs to stay out there. We're not going to let him invade our life. Like, he can't tell us everything to do. We can kind of pick and choose what we like about him. But we'll keep him out there. And God looks at that and rejects it. 
So you might say that God ripped that curtain because God rejects empty religion. He'll spit it out of his mouth. A place that was meant to facilitate worship of God has become a place where we worship ourselves and God says, away with it. You see, empty religion, uh, it looks good on the outside, right? Activities, temple's beautiful. I mean, that, that was a sight, they say, that was just fantastic to see. Come over the Mount of Olives and lay eyes on this beautiful temple. And the closer you get, the more beautiful it gets. I'm sure the songs they sang were beautiful. Just to be there would have been breathtaking. Looks beautiful on the outside, but inside is totally empty. That's why Jesus looks at the religious leaders and says, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You know, like a, a tomb, right? It, you know, whitewashed, it's nice and clean, it looks nice on the outside, but inside, it's death. There's nothing inside of you. He says, you guys praise me with your lips, but inwardly, your hearts are far from me. This is not about worship of God. This is about worship of yourself. And it's everywhere. It's not, it's not just in Mark 15. It's everywhere in our day. People show up to services all the time thinking that, okay, now I kind of got God on my side and I can go about, do whatever I want the rest of the week. God doesn't really come into invade my space. He needs to kind of stay over there in the service, not come into my Tuesday morning or my Tuesday evening. It's all over the place. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves, how do you tell, right? How do, how do you tell if what I'm, what I'm doing is actually empty worship of God or it's the real deal? And actually, I think you, if you think earlier in the, the book of Mark when Jesus is telling the parable of the sowers, I think this actually gives a good, a good, good indicator for us. Jesus says that the word of God is sown, Right? It goes out and it lands on different types of soil. Some it's just snatched away right away. But then it falls on the rocky soil and that with thorns and thistles. It seems like it does well for a little bit. But then the pains of life come in. And suddenly it drifts away. It yields nothing. Or the pleasures of the world come in. And they no longer need God. And I think the pains and pleasures of life are very good indicators for us. What's actually going on in the inside. See, when pain comes in, the hardships of the world, if what's going on inside, if we're treating God more like a barn cat, he does what we say, when hardship comes in, we'll say, I'll find someone else to, to give me the comfort I seek, the safety I seek, the satisfaction I seek, because God's not willing to give it to me. I'll go somewhere else for it. And pain can really expose who we really are and how we view God. How we grumble against him. How all of a sudden when God's not giving us what we want, we really realize we weren't actually worshiping God for God. We were worshiping God so that he served us. So he became our barn cat and he's now indebted to us. God rejects that. God says, I, I want none of that. I'm not, I'm not interested in your service. What do we think that God needs us to gather and do, do things for him and, or offer sacrifice? Does God need that? God created the world. God keeps our heart beating. 
He doesn't need any of our service. And yet somehow we twist it all and we think that we're so great. And if we do certain things, we will keep God in our debt. And unlike Job, when hardship happens, you remember what Job happened, right? Job loses all of his kids. They're all dead. Loses his health. His wife even comes to him and says, why don't you curse God and die? And what does the true worshiper of God do in that moment? He says, no. God has given. God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In deep grief, he worships God. Because he's worshiping God for who God is, not for what God gives him. Or like Jesus on the cross, receiving the, the worst mistreatment in the history of the world, a totally innocent man hanging there on the cross, and what does he do? But he grieves, laments to God, not grumbling against God, as we saw the other week, Psalm 22, entrusting himself, believing that God will bring deliverance in worship. Now, let me at least show you through Mark how, how, God, uh, how Mark develops this uh, thought. So actually, if you turn back, uh, let's go outside of the book of Mark real quick. Let's go back to Malachi. So if you turn backwards in your Bible, go Matthew, and then the next book back will be Malachi. It's the very last book of the Old Testament. Written about 400 years before uh, Jesus comes on the scene uh, in the flesh. Malachi chapter 3, here we read uh, God speaking. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now pause here just for a minute. If you noticed, that's the opening line of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 2, he quotes from this passage. Behold, I send my messenger before me. Before me. So this is God speaking. I send my messenger before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to where? To his temple. I'm coming to the temple, the very place, the center of worship. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now look at what he says. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Because he, God, God is coming like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them with gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust against, uh, aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So this is, this is the, the very last note coming out of the Old Testament, that God is going to come to his temple and is going to refine, he's going to bring judgment. He's going to get rid of all the dross. And he's going to purify it. So when, when Mark opens up his gospel in Mark chapter 1, saying this is what's happening, Jesus is coming, God in the flesh is coming, where is he going to go? He's going to go to the temple. But as the book of Mark un, uh, develops, remember, where does Jesus go? He, he goes to the north. 
He goes and does most of his ministry up in Galilee, at least in the book of Mark. Other gospel uh, writers have him in Jerusalem earlier, but Mark is um, literally keeping Jesus up in Galilee for the first 10 chapters. He doesn't set foot in Jerusalem. Finally, in chapter 11, Jesus finally makes his way to Jerusalem, and where does he go? Right to the temple. Because that's, that's what he's here for, to bring judgment on the people of Israel. And where would he bring judgment? Right at the heart of worship. So he goes in chapter 11, he goes to the temple, and what's he do that first day? Just observes, doesn't do anything, right? And then he leaves. Second day, uh, chapter 11, uh, on his way to the temple, you remember what he does? Sees a fig tree. Fig tree has leaves on it, so it's giving the appearance of what, what should look like will have fruit. So it looks pretty, looks like it should have food on it, but it has none. And what does Jesus do? I curse you, may you never have fruit again. You remember that? And we saw that in chapter 11, that this is meant to be a symbolic message about what's actually going in the temple. Because then Jesus goes in the temple, and what's he do? Throws over the the money changers' tables. Makes a huge commotion in the temple. And uh, he quotes from a very important place in there, because the people are upset. The leaders of Israel are upset. Who gives you authority to do this, to treat the temple this way? And he quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. And when he quotes from Jeremiah, is a very important passage where Jeremiah, uh, living hundreds of years before, is a prophet, and he's prophesying against the leaders of Israel as well about the temple. That temple was the one that Solomon built, and that one was about to be destroyed. And what Jeremiah did uh, to those leaders, he said, look, you guys think that by coming here and doing your sacrifices, you, th- you think that God owes you something. You keep saying, well, God's going to keep us safe because we did this sacrifice. No, that's empty. There's no true faith. There's no true trusting in God. You, you, you come and do these sacrifices, then the rest of the week you go off and do other stuff. You worship these other false gods. God rejects that, and he's going to destroy this temple. The way Jeremiah does it, he says, now remember how God got rid of the Ark of the Covenant back in uh, the days of Samuel, when it was in Shiloh, and the Philistines took it? You remember how God did that? He destroyed the tabernacle then. He's about to do it in this day. And Jesus then calls us up and says, hey, remember how God destroyed the temple back then? And God destroyed the temple right then? And God's going to do it again. Because all this is empty. There's no true faith fear. This, this is empty religion. And God wants none of it. He'll spit it out of his mouth. And if you move forward, if you're in our passage, Mark 15, what happens right before the scene, actually, as Jesus hanging on the cross, verse 29 of chapter 15, those who pass by, they deride him, shaking their heads at Jesus and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And what happens right after Christ dies? Jesus destroys the temple. At least it starts. AD 70, it will be totally wiped out and never to be rebuilt again. This is God's way of saying, look, you reject God, I reject you. You think you can put me in your debt? I reject it. That's not how this works. And this is not the only place. This is actually a theme all all the way throughout the scriptures. I had a long list of passages. Uh, We don't have time to read them all, but I brought five. Uh, So just want you to see this is a theme that God has for his people repeatedly. Proverbs 1. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. Isn't that amazing that that's in our Bible? People will call upon God, and God says, I will not answer you. 
They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge. Right before this in the context, uh, they refused to listen to what God said. They wanted, they wanted to live their own way. And so God says, fine, you, you, when you call upon me, you hated what I had to say then. I won't listen to you now because you do not choose to fear the Lord. Hosea 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, if you do the offerings without steadfast love, then you can keep your offerings. God doesn't need offerings. What does he need that for? This is all meant to stir up love towards God, humility towards God. For Samuel, Samuel said this to, to Saul, uh, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey, to obey God is better than sacrifice. And to listen to God is better than the fat of rams. Because rebellion is as the sin of divination or going to get uh, fortune telling. To rebel against God is the same thing as that. Or presumption, uh, here the word means like arrogant, arrogance towards God. It's the same thing as iniquity and idolatry. Psalm 51, this is right after David uh, committed sin with Bathsheba. For, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. It's internal. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And finally, Isaiah. This one is uh, pretty stark. This is God speaking. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, which God commanded the people to keep, and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. See, God says, I don't, I don't need all that. I want your heart. That's what I'm after. The temple was meant to draw the heart of the people to God. And here they're misusing the temple and God says, away with it. God rejects it. So, what do you think about that? What do you think about that reality that God says in his word, that he, he rejects empty religion? You know, God still declares that very same thing today. 
that he will not be anybody's barn cat. That's not what he's after. He, he is God. He's the one in authority. He's the one that makes the commands. He's the one that tells, the, uh, tells us the way should, life should go. We don't get to pick and choose. You know, we, we can ask ourselves, why, why are we here today? You know, in a room this size, I, I, would, I would assume there's probably some folks among us today that have come here thinking that somehow if you are here, you kind of keep God on your good side. And it gives you a little bit of freedom to kind of live how you want the rest of the week. Get to use your pocketbook how you want. You get to use your schedule how you want. Get to, to think on things the way you want. Get to, get to pick and choose what you like about God. Or we could ask, you know, why? Why would God accept you? If there's any inclination in your heart that says, well, because I've done A, B, and C, or because I do these activities, that's exactly what the people of Israel were doing. Because they do these activities, God will like them. Or because they, they kind of keep their nodes clean throughout the week some days. Or because they don't do those sins, but they have freedom to do these ones. That's exactly what they were doing. And God says, I reject that. If that's you this morning, uh, I think the curtain here, the split curtain would, would be declaring to you, turn from that. That is making a, a God of your own. That is not the true God. Flee from that. And don't, don't just try to go turn it over a new leaf, but repent and turn to God. You've sinned against the holy God. Try to make him into your own image. And God rejects that. And because of that, you deserve the judgment of God. And our only hope is that God would somehow relieve that punishment. Because God's a good judge and he will ensure that justice is paid. And that's why it's so good that we read right before this statement in verse 38 that the Son of God is hanging on the cross to pay the penalties for the sins of his people. The gospel says that Christ died for our sins. So if you're here this morning, and that is you, I think the curtain says, turn from your ways and look upon the one on the cross who died in the place of sinners and takes the punishment of those who have sought God with empty religion. And you will find salvation. Of course, uh, I think many who are here uh, have, we have turned from empty religion. We, we don't want to practice that. We want, we want to come and we want to worship the Lord. We have trusted in the Lord Jesus. And we want our lives to be those who are, are truly worshiping God for who he is, not for who, uh, what we want him to do. But I still think a passage like this, we should let it sober us. Because I, th I still think the curtain warns us. Because all of us are tempted towards this. I know I sure am. To try to think that God sort of owes me something because I've, I've done A, B, and C. I'm kind of keeping my nose clean. And this passage, is, it's good to warn us. You know, the warnings of God are very good for God's people. The warnings are actually what help keep us on the straight and narrow path. The book of Hebrews is littered with warnings. It's, they're very good for us. So you think about the warnings of God. Someone like, you know, if you're driving through a neighborhood and there's a, a road sign that says, uh, radar enforced. It, it, it's, it's warning you that the police might be testing your speed and you're going to get in trouble if you're going too fast. 
So it's, it's telling you to not speed here. And what is that warning supposed to do? It's actually supposed to cause a response in you. It says, okay, I'm, I'm not going to speed. The warnings of God are for our good. They're supposed to prod us and say, wait, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you doing that activity? Is that actually for God or is that more for you? And so this is, this is meant to be very, very good for us. You know, the, we, we should never think that, well, I've been in the faith for two decades. I won't struggle with this. No, not at all. This is always going to be a struggle. I mean, even the author of Hebrews writing to an audience, uh, if you've read that book, he, he talks about their past. He says, man, you guys, were, you guys experienced the plundering of your property. You joyfully accepted that. You, you accepted affliction for the cause of the gospel. You guys went to great lengths and experienced great suffering for the cause of Christ. But you're tempted to shrink back. You're coasting. You're taking it easy. And so he warns them again and again. If you fall away, you will have no forgiveness. The blood of Jesus will have no uh, positive impact for you. Or the Apostle Paul, as he writes in his final letter, he talks about his buddy Damas. Damas had, had run with Paul. He was willing to risk his life with Paul for years. Talks about him in another book. At the end of his life, Paul says, Damas, he's left me. A man who was willing to risk his life for the cause of the gospel has left. Why? Paul says, having loved this present world, he deserted me. Something about the world captivated Damas so much that the world could give him more than God could. And he went his own way. So we should never uh, just kind of like look past the warnings of God. These are for our good. Let them prod us. Let them poke us. Uh, and then last, uh, I would just say that we want, we want the curtain to expose us. It's good for us to see how do I approach God as if he's my barn cat. So my understanding would be, it's not if we ever do. We do approach God like that. All of us do. The question is how. And some of the ways that you can help experience that or help determine where you treat God like that is to ask, um, you might ask the question, how much freedom does God have to make any demand of you? How free is God to call you into hardship such that you'll receive it without kicking and screaming? How free is God to call you to forgive someone that's hurt you? How free is God to tell you to not do certain behaviors even though you really enjoy them? How, how, how much freedom does God really have in our lives? Most of us, there are times where we want to compartmentalize and give God access to a lot of places, but there are certain parts we don't want God to touch. Whether that be our safety, our comfort, our schedule, our pocketbook, you name it. Another question we can ask is, is where do we grumble most? Grumble against God. I'm, I'm not saying lamenting. Lamenting is worshiping God through pain, but grumbling against God. God's not giving me this, and so we grumble against him. That helps, helps to expose, yeah, there are ways. There are ways that we treat God as if he owes us something. Now, when we experience that, that's God's kindness to us. God is helping us see. You know, when we treat God like that, we're enslaving ourselves. We're shrinking God 
God down to our size anyways. We don't want that. We want to live in the freedom of, of knowing, like, we add nothing to God. God is not somehow more complete because I do some religious exercise, because I read my Bible or I'm, I'm among the people of God. God is not now happy today because I did something, as if he was going to be depressed if I didn't do something. That's great news. That's freedom. Like, we want a God that doesn't need us. And so this is very good for us. And what we do then is we don't try to turn over a new leaf and say, okay, now I'm not going to do that anymore. What we do is we run quickly to the cross. Because where we find forgiveness is not now like, oh, now we're going to do better. But we say, no, no, no. The blood of Jesus paid for those sins of mine. So here's the way the, the uh, Isaiah passage continues, the one that we already read, where God says, I hate, I hate, I hate your festivals. I don't need all that stuff. If you continue on, verse 18, God moves right to the cleansing. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Not because of some religious exercise, but because God provides atonement. And that's what we're reading in the book of Mark. Because the Son of God would come and die in the place of sinners. That we would be made white as snow. You who have put your trust in Christ, this is good news for us that the curtain was torn. It reminds us, it exposes our false religion, turns us towards the Lord, and then next week we'll, we will see how it provides unlimited, unhindered access to God. And that is great news. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ,